Chapter 11. Later, I found out two sources confirmed I had been inside the school late Friday and early Saturday morning. One anonymous source citing a woman had entered the school with me. Another, only that my car had been in the parking lot and was later gone. I immediately asked for a lawyer indicating I wouldn't be helping their investigation until my lawyer was present. Fortunately, a friend of mine was an attorney and he arrived at 10.30 p.m. We spoke privately long enough for him to construct meaning from my situation, then explaining the semen being on the sheets to, to the detectives and district attorney. Other evidence seemed more important to them. Though not a criminal defense attorney, he came to the police station and he got them to release me. The murder charges were dropped. By this time, detectives had my cell phone data proving I had called her at 7.30 Saturday. I had no wounds and the blood trail was left by someone else. Upon my release, I went home and began to compile my list of things to do. I contacted my superintendent, who in turn notified appropriate district administrators and the school board of the essential facts, including I would be at the school on Monday morning. He got hold of the public information officer to be at the school to handle press. He called the special services coordinator to have nurses and school counselors at the school to be available in case any staff or students needed their professional help. District security would keep the press off campus and require parents to check in through the office before going farther onto campus. At 7 a.m. I did go to school, called a staff meeting for 10 after 8, 20 minutes before students were to arrive in their classrooms before classes began, made sure the substitute had a partner teacher who could help with some quick lesson plans. The staff was informed of the essential facts and were instructed not to speculate with students or others. Furthermore, while initially arrested, I had been cleared and was helping the detectives. Some teachers informed me they were contacted by police overnight to confirm their observations of those present during the TGIF. The teachers questioned were those who had been to one or the other of the TGIFs I had been to, naming me as being present. When the bell rang at 8.20, I proceeded to the classroom where the substitute was getting things ready. Chapter 12. Explaining the age-appropriate facts of the death of a teacher to a class of fourth graders has never been in my repertoire of experiences, but I did it. The school psychologist had seen the news that previous evening and made contact with other nurses and psychologists to be at the school for students and staff who might need their professional help. The psychologist and regular school nurse were introduced to the, to the substitute and I soon left the classroom of students whose teacher had been murdered over the weekend. The staff provided the necessary counseling for the students and helped the substitute get the students writing about their beloved teacher and a personal note to their dead teacher's sister. Parents who arrived with questions were directed to attend a meeting with me in the multi-purpose room when school began. Coffee had been prepared, the PTA officers had purchased goodies and talking stopped. Everyone was seated as I entered the room and stood in front of those assembled about 10 to 9. There were parents who had seen reports or knew I had been taken into custody. 
I asked the 30 or so who were present and had been standing out in front of the school to join me and others in the library. Gave them the same essential facts, but said I am helping with the investigation and could not comment farther. Furthermore, all charges against me had been dropped. And then it happened. One pain in the ass parent said he had been told my car was in the school parking lot after midnight Friday when a couple saw it as they were returning home. Is that true? She asked. I answered matter-of-factly that the detectives are aware of the same information because I had told them about forgetting to run off my class syllabus and needing to use the Xerox machine at the school Friday night for my Saturday morning class. Other questions were more civil and important, like who will replace the murdered teacher? Does she have family nearby? Where does her sister teach and how can we help the staff? And then even when is the funeral? And how can we help you? I only needed them to help keep their children's focus on school and to keep their adult conversations among adults. Teachers were having a hard enough time personally as it is. Some knew her well, and some children would ask questions they could only answer by saying that I was helping with the investigation. Chapter 13 all week, parents and students and detectives had questions. I had helped Joyce make the necessary contacts to arrange for the closed casket funeral. It would be next Saturday. Using my roll sheet, I contacted my Saturday class of students to indicate class was not canceled because of the funeral that I would be attending. Instead, they would be taught by someone else following my syllabus. During the week, my boss contacted me each morning at 6 a.m. on my cell at our prearranged time to indicate his support and see if I needed anything or if I knew anything her sister needed. He volunteered to cover my class next Saturday. I couldn't confirm the funeral information, though it was tentatively set for Saturday at 10 a.m., pending release of the body by the coroner. The district security personnel came to campus at the start of each day, but generally left a little after 10. I had another meeting with fewer parents on Tuesday with no new information to share. Wondering parents stopped their morning visit to gossip and be interviewed on camera. By Wednesday morning, our public information officer kept parents informed and organized a press conference with detectives on Thursday morning. Daily, I saw or was in touch with Joyce, usually at dinner to give her cards and letters being given to me to forward. Of course, both of us shared news and facts. We learned the news did not have all the facts, and we agreed to let the PIO make corrections when we heard of errors. On Friday morning, I had made it clear to the press I was helping by responding to detectives' questions, but had no further information to provide them. I was present at the press conference the day before, but only as an observer. Not speaking caused the press to be insistent on questioning me, thus the Friday press conference. The principal at Joyce's school had wisely turned over press communication to the district PIO. The PIO published a statement indicating 
the principal and staff at the school where the sister of the murdered teacher is employed would have no information to provide because the investigation is currently underway and some staff are grieving with the teacher who is mourning. I made no mention of attending TGIF at two different locations Friday night when talking with parents initially. Somewhere in the middle of the week, gossip reared its ugly head and in a group of parents standing out in front of school, a parent asked if the staff had their typical TGIF and named the bar and restaurant. I responded that any private social activity of the staff is encouraged, but not something I would choose to comment on. Chapter 14. Joyce was a mess all week. Emotionally, as expected, though a friend had come to help her move into another apartment closer to her own school. I had called her cell phone often, sometimes just to talk, other times to confirm the funeral arrangements and offer support and comfort as much as possible. I picked up and copied notes from the two night classes she was missing. The notes were from teachers on my staff. I knew her professor and put a call into him so he would be assured she would be back. In death, we were becoming more and more acquainted and a friendship born by mourning was evolving. We greeted each other with an, with an embrace, sometimes giving each other a peck on the cheek. She became aware her sister had someone that was more than just another teacher on my staff to me. It appeared the entire staff of my school and her sister's school came to the church where the funeral was held. The priest who conducted the Mass had known her parents and the sisters from their childhood. He was literally a godsend. His words were comforting and seemed to attend to the needs of those present. One set of detectives and others I didn't even know were in the audience as I stood to offer the eulogy, along with another childhood friend. It was standing room only. Some parents brought their children, her students. I hoped it would give them closure along with others. As we left the cemetery, the detectives asked if we could speak privately. They wanted my help, the sooner the better. The security camera video was going to be shown to me. They wanted to see if I or her sister could identify the people seen in the video. I told them today was not the day. Tomorrow, I'll see if she's up to it. I picked up Joyce on Sunday morning the day after the funeral and we drove to the same police station where I had spent the previous Sunday being interrogated. The, in the detectives assured us my attorney would not need to be present and that they sincerely would appreciate our help. We agreed with the stipulation they would make a press statement as to how helpful we were being and their appreciation to us for the time we had given already. Chapter 15. The police had a large screen to project the videotape recording onto for our review. Unfortunately, fog interfered with the clarity of the video. In fact, it was hard to recognize myself bringing her home both times. Weather was not our friend as this part of the investigation continued. The video did show there had been a few people come to her apartment door the day before and day of her murder. The same person twice, 
a man on both days. The first night the sisters weren't home, but the night June was killed, he had come back twice. No one visiting any of the other tenants could be identified. It became clear when we saw the same man return the second time, and being allowed to enter, she knew him. But he didn't come in the first time on the Saturday that she was killed. The time stamp said 6 p.m. The next visit was at 8.30 that night. The second time he brought wine, flowers, and what looked like candy. And she let him in. I remarked that I had called her at 7 prior to the man's second arrival with the wine, flowers, and candy. June had made no mention of him being there the first time when we spoke on the phone. He left according to the next clip at 9 p.m., carrying some object while holding his arm. The path he followed was the same as the blood drops found outside the apartment when he was moving fast, almost running. As much as I strained to identify the visitor, I couldn't, although I did notice the car he was driving was one I may have seen before. After he left, the videotape ended, though another was put in the next day. The fog had cleared, and the only person coming to the apartment the next morning was her sister and shortly thereafter the police. We looked no farther on the tape, realizing we had not been particularly helpful.